Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we cannot approach you on our own, that you, the holy God of heaven, creator of all things, would come to us. Wow. You, you would come to us. And we rejoice in this good news that there's only one God, and that God is indeed good. And Lord, we are so grateful for that. So good that you would, that you would seek to walk with us who on our own are pitiful and unworthy. But that in calling us to walk with you, that you would make us holy. And this is all you're working. It's nothing that we can do. Oh, Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for that. We pray that you would help us now as we, as we look to your word. Help us to be reminded of your goodness and called to walk with you more faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are to that lovely time of year where you see people that you only see once a year. And depending on a combination of your personality and those people that you only see once a year, you either think, oh, I wish we could see each other more, or you think, I'm glad I only see them once a year. Now, I'm going to assume, because you are lovely people, that you are in the first group, that you see these. I'm getting strongly rebuked for that assumption. Um, I, I'm still going to assume that you are of the ilk that thinks, oh, I wish I could see these people more. And if you are in that group, you may say things when you part from them after, after your, your celebrations. I'm going to miss you. You will, maybe, maybe while you were together, they, they opened up and shared some struggles they were going through. And you're, you're able to say, oh, I'm praying for you. I will be thinking of you. Or you will say something to the effect of, I will be with you in spirit. As you go, I will be with you in spirit which is really the best we can offer. I can't be with you. I would like to be with you. It's physically impossible for me to be with you. So I will be thinking of you. I will be praying for you, trusting in the God that binds us together. But I myself am actually quite unable to go with you. And so we offer the best we can. I'll be with you in my mind and in my heart, but not in physical presence. Because we're severely limited. But isn't it good news that our God does not have the same limitations we do? Isn't it good news that the Bible doesn't say from God, that, that the God of heaven doesn't look at us and say, ah, go on, 
I'll be with you in spirit. It, God doesn't say, oh, you go face those fears, those trials, those persecutions, all that illness. You go face that, and I, the God of heaven, will be thinking of you. No. He says, I will be with you. Isn't that great? He says, I will be with you. We, we find the psalmist in Psalm 139 saying, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? And your spirit isn't there. If I go, to, uh, if I rise up on the wings of the morning, you're there. And if I go to the depths of the sea, if I go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the spirit of God is with me. If I get to the, the greatest highs that this life has to offer and the most exhilarating, wonderful parts of life, God is with me. And in the depths of the grave, my God is with me. That there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of the Lord. This is good news. It's really easy to separate from one another. All we gotta do is go home. Get in our car, we're separated. But God is always with his people. Last week, we started in the most traditional of all Christmas passages, Exodus 3. This week, we're going to the second most traditional of all Christmas passages and looking at the tabernacle. You guys, you're, I know, it's just all the Christmas carols around the tabernacle are buzzing in your ears. But as Exodus opens, the message from God to his people is, I see you, I hear you, I know you're suffering, I've come to deliver you, I know what you're going through, I see you, I hear you. It's over and over again, God saying, I'm with you and I'm here to deliver. And then, through the course of the plagues, God displays his power over Pharaoh. He raises, as he promised, his mighty hand against Pharaoh to compel Pharaoh that he should let the people go to serve the Lord. He then parts the Red Sea for them to cross on dry land, closing the sea once again to thoroughly defeat Pharaoh and his army. And he ushers them to the mountain to worship. He ushers them to the fulfillment of what he told Moses in Exodus 3. This is how you'll know I'm with you when you go to Pharaoh, that, that you guys are going to serve me on this mountain. And so then they get to the mountain. They serve God. They don't serve God. They repent. They serve God again. But there's a potential problem. And here's the problem. The mountain that they go to worship God is not included in the real estate that God promised to Abraham. The mountain is not in the land. So they have to leave the mountain of God. They have to leave the place that God called them out of Egypt to meet with him at. They have to leave the place where God has come down to commune with them. And so God lovingly and graciously provides them with instructions on walking with him. And we most commonly think of these instructions that God gives them at the mountain as the Ten Commandments. The thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. A set of instructions of doing the right thing. 
But even in those precious commandments, there was more than that. It was more than the Ten Commandments they received at that mountain. They also received instructions on building the tabernacle. The tabernacle, unlike the elaborate temple that Solomon constructed following David's plans for it, tabernacle was pretty ordinary. It was a tent. It was intended to be taken down and set up over and over and over again. It was meant to be packed. It was not ultralight fabric. I'm sure the Levites would have loved that. But the whole intention was that it could be moved over and over and over again so that wherever God led the people, his presence would be with them to guide them, to instruct them, to protect them, and to offer forgiveness. The tabernacle itself is a gospel image that leads to a greater fulfillment teaching us, teaching us this. Emmanuel is not temporal or bound by location, but is with his people and for his people. That God with us is not bound to a location. We don't get in our car and go home and Emmanuel is not with us. He wasn't bound to the mountain. He's not currently bound to the Holy Land. He is with us. And Emmanuel is the God who dwells with his people. As we go to talking about the sanctuary and the tabernacle, we start in Exodus 25, and we're going to be zeroing in on, on verse 8 here in a little bit. But I, I want to see as we approach it that there's something necessary and freeing and I think calming to God's motivation of being with his people. He's not saying, I'm going to be with you wherever you go so I can make sure you don't do the wrong thing and mess up because you're a bunch of idiots. He doesn't say that. Have you ever noticed how, how many people talk about their need? And certainly the people had a need for the tabernacle. People talk about their need. I need to worship. I need to go be alone with the Lord. I need to feel the presence of God. I need to experience the presence of God. I, I need to be with the Lord. Whether that's going to church or putting on that, that absolute banger of a Spotify worship playlist or being out in nature, the list goes on. And I'm not disputing that we have a need, but before we go to the need of the people, we need to look at God's desire. That God's presence among the people is, yes, there's a lot that the people need in God's presence, but it starts with God's desire to be with his people. All right, so let's look at Exodus. We're gonna, I'm just going to read the first uh, eight, eight, nine verses here of Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me 
a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So many times, you know, in our yearly reading plans, we get to this section of Exodus. And it, and it feels like if you're anything like your pastor, like the exciting part of the book is done. Okay, now we're on to the Hobby Lobby of Exodus. <laughs> I know that gets some of you really excited, but I like the Shields of Exodus. I don't even know if there is a Shields in Exodus, but there's certainly a Hobby Lobby. We're here. But we get, I think when we get to this part, we get caught up in how the tabernacle was made. We, in these first nine verses, we look a lot at verse 1 to 7, all the contributions that were brought. We look a lot at verse 9, follow this pattern, and then the following chapters, which are the pattern. And there's some cool nuggets in there that, that can get, I think, any believer excited. But then there's a whole lot of use this kind of fabric, this kind of thread, make the rings look like this, the poles look like this, the ark look like this, the ephod look like this. And you're like, I, I barely know what a curtain is. But we miss verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God is not content to leave, let the people leave the mountain without a plan for him to dwell with them. He didn't save them so they could be free from slavery in Egypt. He didn't save them so they could stop throwing their baby boys into the river. He didn't save them because Egypt had enough pyramids already. He saved them so that he could dwell with them and they could walk with him. It's no small thing for the holy Lord of heaven to want to be with unholy people. But that is the Lord's desire. And he stops at nothing to make it happen. We, just see, we see this desire over and over again through Scripture. In Leviticus 26, 12, God says, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. This, this idea of God saying, I will walk among you, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's repeated again in Jeremiah. It's repeated in Ezekiel. It's fulfilled in Christ as the Son of God literally walks with his people. And we see the ultimate fulfillment in Revelation in the new city where God says, I am their God and they are my people. And the first thing he does is he wipes all the tears from our eyes. As we enter this new city, this 
is God's heart. It is the Lord's pleasure to be with his people and sanctify them. Now it's not only God's presence, but it's, it's our good and to our benefit. We were created to walk with God and sin separated us from that. We were created with a need for the presence of God and the will of God and the work of God in our hearts. We were created to walk with him. This is what Adam and Eve did before the sin. They would walk with the Lord in the garden. And so we see through, throughout Scripture this need to be in God's presence. We, uh, I want to highlight just one of them this morning, and that's Psalm 61. If you want to turn there, you can. If you want to take my word for it, I mean, that's on you. This is what David says. He says, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I cry to you. My heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, O oh God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. But did you hear this? David, of the tribe of Judah, says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Here's the crazy thing. David, of the tribe of Judah, couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. The Levites did that. He had, his distant cousins had to do that for him. But here he is. He's hard-pressed. He's exhausted. He's weary from enemies on multiple sides. Weary from his own sin. He says, I need refuge. What I need, what I really need, what I need the most right now is to be in the uttermost presence of God. I need to be in the Holy of Holies forever. He's not asking for an immediate temporal deliverance. He's not asking for a circumstantial change. He's asking to be in the presence of God. And this is our need. This is our desire. The good news is that in the midst of this need and desire that we have a God who's not sitting there going, oh, would you just leave me alone? Enough. I get it. We don't have a God who's exhausted of us, but a God who desires to dwell with us. See, our need for the presence of God is not the same need that someone in the desert has for water. Here's what I mean by that. It's not that we're so desperately dehydrated because there's no water. And so us being thirsty is not because we are in the Sahara. Our need for the presence of God, our thirst for the presence of God, is like me being dehydrated next to Lake Superior. And there's so many times, there's so many times where spiritually I feel dehydrated. I feel disoriented. Anxiety seems to be clouding everything out. Thoughts of despair are crowding in. 
presence of the holy God is there. Now, there's a lot to unpack with that that we're not going to get into right now, but I just want to say this, that the presence of God, even when I'm the least aware of it and in the most need of it, is doing more for me than I can say. That the Holy Spirit of God in those moments where we feel just overwhelmed with anxiety or loneliness or depression, that the Holy Spirit of God in us is praying in groans that are too deep for words on our behalf as we suffer. That the Holy Spirit of God is interceding for you and the Son of God on the throne is interceding for you to the Father. That the whole Trinity is involved in praying for us in those moments. And my dehydration, so to speak there, isn't because of a lack of water, but because for some reason I'm not going to it. Either I'm not strong enough to get me there and I need the body of Christ to help me or I'm too blind to the abundance that God has given me in that moment or some other reason. But we can learn from David in saying my hope is in the God who dwells with his people and my hope is in dwelling with the Lord. And the good news with it is that God, God, with covenantal desire and drive, dwells with his people. And so as this section of Exodus continues, the people give abundantly of all these things. And there are people filled with the Holy Spirit, enabled for skill of metalwork and embroidery, and they put it all together and they follow the pattern. And then when it's completed and consecrated, what feels like it should be this high point is actually something quite different. Because God dwells with his people, but God, Emmanuel, is also the God who is uncompromisingly and transcendently holy. So now we go to where, where everything is put together in Exodus 40. Moses goes around with the oil. He, he sprinkles everything with oil. He anoints everything. Then we get to verse 34. And the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And as the readers were going, yes, this is it. God is dwelling with his people. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They have the dwelling place and not even Moses can get in. You know, I mean, I'm not a betting man. But if, I, if you were like, hey, look, you got to pick one guy from the Bible, put your chips in that this guy can walk into the presence of God and his name can't start with a J, who are you picking? I'd be like, Moses. 
Clearly it's Moses. I mean, Moses, the burning bush, Mount Sinai. He's like, God, let me see your face. God's like, how's my back? Moses is like, that's fantastic. His face would glow. It's got to be Moses. And the glory comes down. And Moses can't get in. And it's not like, I mean, this is a tent. A tent is the least secure structure on earth. There's no door frame. There's no lock to pick. It's a tent. The only thing tents keep out is mosquitoes. And sometimes not even that. Moses cannot get in. God's glorious holiness doesn't make exceptions. There were some lessons for the people in this that they needed to get. First of all, you cannot earn your way into the holy of holies. You can't. This is a loud and clear message to the people that they were not good enough to waltz in to the holy of holies, to God's presence come down to earth. That even though God comes to dwell with us, we can't just walk in and go, hello, Lord, here I am. We can't do that. Now, had Moses walked in and no one else been able to, then we might have thought, oh, I need to be like Moses. And Moses would be the hero. But Moses, who's been the hero up to this point in many kind of weird ways, if you're not reading the book correctly, is no longer able to be seen as the hero because not even he can go in here. Not even Moses can get in. And anyone who thought, if I'm just like Moses, then God will accept me, is proven wrong right here. Even Moses had to come to God on God's terms. And in the, the story of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, what this does is it sets up Leviticus and says, you actually can't come to God without there being a blood sacrifice to atone for your sins. Moses couldn't come in because even Moses had sin. The people had sin. And if we don't come to the Lord of heaven through a sacrifice that pays the penalty of our sin, then we do not come to the Lord God of heaven. We can't do it. There's something else here, though. God wanted to show the people his glory and his holiness in a way they wouldn't forget. Philip Ryken, a commentator, says this, After a while, we start to get used to God. We become familiar with the vocabulary used to describe his divine attributes. We've heard of his holiness, his justice, mercy, and love. We are able to list these terms and perhaps even to define them. But do we have any idea how glorious God is in the majesty of his triune being? Are we aware of the mortally dangerous perfection of his holiness? Do we sense how overwhelming it is to come into the presence of his glory? 
Moses knew God better than any man alive, yet when glory came down, he was not able to enter. Neither can we penetrate God's infinite glory. We can only stand back and worship with reverence and awe. They had to come through sacrifice. They had to have their sins dealt with. God wants to dwell with people. People are unholy, and God's holiness is uncompromising and it's transcendent. He provides the sacrifice. But we also get this, this kind of other image of God's holiness right here at the end of Exodus. While he is uncompromisingly and transcendently holy, he, he, Emmanuel is also the God who lovingly and personally guides his people. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. And the sight of all the house, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Exodus concludes with this understated picture of God dwelling with his people. His dwelling with the people was graciously patient. You think about this. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here's what that means. That means the people leave the mountain and they're going, they're traveling up to the promised land. And there's this cloud by day, fire by night, and it's guiding them. And they get up to the promised land, and the, the cloud is hanging out over the tabernacle, so they know not to move, so they send in some spies. And the spies come back, and almost all of the spies say, that's a death sentence. We are grasshoppers to those people they will crush us. We can't enter the promised land. And they completely, the nation freaks out and forsakes the promises of God, the God who has led them by cloud and fire through the tabernacle, the God who has dwelt with them. And so the cloud turns around and they go back to the desert and they go to the wilderness and they travel around the wilderness for 40 years, led every single day by this cloud and this fire. And every day the people would look. And then after 40 years when a new generation has risen up, they go, this cloud takes them back to the promised land and they enter in. Gracious patience in all their journeys. The loving, personal guiding of God to his people, dwelling with his people was daily and regular. Can you imagine getting used to this? Sometimes we wonder if like, people in Colorado are used to seeing the mountains, or people that live by a coast are used to seeing the ocean, or if we ever get used to seeing corn. <laughs> Can you imagine getting used to seeing this? Oh, over in the corner of camp, there's a tabernacle. You wake up in the morning, you're like, yep, cloud's still there. We don't have to pack up. Let's go get our manna. 
Oh, cloud moved, we better go. And we're following this cloud through. And then at night you look over and it's just fire. And you're like, that's normal? And how many times do we view the glory and the presence and the forgiveness of God with a sense of normality lacking the wonder that it deserves? He guides his people. God takes them through the desert, providing them food and water, and their clothes never wore out. Do you see the picture of Psalm 23 here? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff comforted them. He prepared tables for them in the presence of their enemies. He poured oil on them, anoint their head with gladness. And goodness and mercy followed them all the days of their life. Do you see that here? He's a good God. But they had this daily reminder. Sometimes I wonder, do we... Do you have a daily reminder? Do you have something that you can look at? Something that you can just have present with you? Just to remind you, I'm not alone in this. The triune God of heaven is with me. I know people who have done something as simple as just having a rubber band on their wrist. Just as a reminder, I'm not alone that God is with me. Maybe it's a a, a promise of God's presence and you put it on a sticky note and you stick it in your car and over the years it needs about eight layers of tape to stay on that dash that you never clean? <laughs> would you consider, if you don't have a reminder, would you consider finding just a very simple thing that you can have with you just to remind you, God is with me in this. The holy God of heaven is with me. We have one of those reminders set right in front of us right now. That the God of heaven wants to dwell with us. And while he is infinitely perfect and holy, we are hopelessly lost and fallen. And we can't dwell with him without entering through a sacrifice. And his son Jesus Christ came and made that sacrifice for us so that we could dwell with the God who wants to dwell with us. As those who come forward to serve, I, I'd invite you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we thank you that you are this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who dwells with his people. And Lord, that you make it possible for this otherwise impossible feat to happen. That we who are broken and sinful and fallen can dwell with the holy God of heaven. Lord, we thank you for all that you did through the incarnation, through promises, century-old promises kept. through a sinless life 
of Christ. And him having his body broken and his blood poured out so that we could be healed. So that we can have life. We can have forgiveness. We can become your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.